Welcome to the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. I'm your host, Guru Nishan. And as always, I like to read the intentions for why I started this podcast at the beginning of every episode. Number one, to break the veil of silence that has long permeated and continues to strangle the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community in the name of neutrality. Number two, to validate and help clarify the complex feelings of those who have joined this lifestyle, were born and raised into it, and or who have practiced or taught kundalini yoga. Number three, to encourage active listening to uncomfortable conversations from this community as a revolutionary act of self and collective healing. Number four, to let survivors know that we see them, we believe them, we love them, and we will fight for their truth to be addressed. Number five, to let teachers who are denying, gaslighting, or spiritually bypassing know that what they are doing is willfully ignorant and re-traumatizing to victims. Number six, to illuminate the inherent racism, homophobia, cultural appropriation, and exploitation that perpetuates the teachings, 3HO lifestyle, and overall community ethos. Number seven, to stop the perpetuation of gaslighting and victim shaming by naming it for what it is. Number eight, to dismantle internalized shame, guilt, toxic positivity, and light washing mentality. Number nine, to honor all of the parts of ourselves that have been forgotten or silenced. Number 10, to honor each and every body that has come through this community, both named and unnamed. Number 11, to encourage people to do their own research to process their own emotions, to get somatic therapy and cult-specific therapy, as well as other support as needed, to draw your own conclusions, and to become critical thinkers rather than to just blindly follow anyone. Please remember that your story matters. Please share it when you're ready. We're here to listen and to support you. Our guest for today is named Manju Sadarangani. She was born and raised in India, surrounded by yoga. Her yoga teacher mother insisted on an upbringing informed by yoga and traditional medicine. In her teen years, her deeply spiritual father joined a Hindu cult, resulting in an upheaval resulting in her immigration to the United States with her mother and brother. Manju found yoga in the U.S. to be deeply puzzling. She would try yoga studios and styles of yoga in an effort to feel the spiritual solace of her childhood yoga practice, but felt extremely excluded at American yoga studios. Throughout most of her adult life, she avoided yoga and practiced it only when she visited the country of her birth. In 2019, serendipity led her to a kundalini yoga class. She was intrigued by this unfamiliar style of yoga, which she found absurd and amusing, both but she was also soothed by the elements of Surat Shabad that she recognized in the Kundalini Yoga practice. 
She enjoyed the element of play and creativity in her Kundalini meditations, but she found herself often flummoxed by the pastiche mantras and practices. She was often, she was offended by some practices like excerpts of Japji inserted into Kriyas. But when she asked questions of Kundalini yoga teachers, they were not able to give her answers that felt logical or grounded in any yoga discipline. Her teachers encouraged her to take teacher training with Kundalini Research Institute, KRI, telling her that that was where she could get her answers. Manju was understandably reluctant, especially after she read the book Premka. In 2020, she was approached by representatives of Kundalini Research Institute who recommended a brand new global teacher training program. This new teacher training was advertised as trauma-informed, inclusive, egalitarian, a symbol of the new direction that KRI and 3HO were embracing. Manju applied to this new teacher training global cohort. She was one of only three Americans, all women of color, it turned out to be one of the most traumatic and racist experiences of her life. Since then, Manju has relied on her command of languages, academic background in South Asian history, conversations with elders and teachers in India, and cultural background to deeply research, question, retrain, and reform her yoga practice. She connects deeply with the feminist, spiritual, and historical foundations of yoga to counter problematic cultural appropriation. Her evolving yoga practice is grounded in a desire for equity, justice, emotional and mental well-being. She brings her spirit of play, body positivity, and radical self-love to her yoga practice, acknowledging that her yoga journey makes her an inconvenient outsider. You can follow her and stay connected at The Art of Manju at manjusadarangani.com. See the show notes for the link to her bio. Well, Manju, I want to say thank you for being on the podcast. I got tingles reading it, reading your bio. Thank you so much, Gunnishan. This is going to be fun. Indeed it is. Um, I want listeners to hear that um, the recent publication of Under the Yoga Mat, um, the dark history of Yogi Bhajan's Kundalini Yoga, um, that Els Kunin and myself uh, got published recently, landed into your hands. You connected to her. She, you and her started a dialogue. That's how I learned about you. And I'm ecstatic to hear the details of your story and for you to bring it here. So thank you. Thank you. And um, thank you for writing the book. It's made a real difference. I find that um, for a lot of folks that are in the Kundalini community, despite the fact that it's been years since some of this has been discussed. Um, the book was one of the few places where all the different aspects of the entire problematic nature of KRI were put in one place. So um, it's actually created a really wonderful dialogue at our yoga studio and we're examining how we move forward. Um, you know, trying to have exactly that informed um, approach to to our yoga practice without you know shortchanging our students and kind of spiritually bypassing their questions so it's, it's been we're extremely grateful for the book well thank you and thank you to else um, who did incredible research and organizing to be able to to put all that together i i find that to be one of the most astounding aspects of that publication as well is that so much of this 
the these stories have been around, obviously the courage of survivors to tell their stories, but also just the things that have been in plain sight that it's so easy as a yoga teacher to bypass and just, oh, but the teaching is so good. I'm just going to stay teaching instead of really looking at the historical secrets that have never been talked about. And so I've been inspired mm-hmm. through that conversation with Else that you and her had about what's happening at your yoga studio And I just think that's excellent that, you know, anybody teaching yoga, but really anybody teaching Kundalini yoga, that's choosing to move forward um, to use this book as a tool to be able to self-examine, but also to illuminate what's always been there and how can we move Mm -hmm. forward and evolve yoga cleanly, not through a Mm -hmm. spiritual bypass, not through a light washing essence, but through the reality of real harm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I, uh, would like to ask you like why you feel it's important to tell your personal story. Cause I'm getting all excited to hear your personal story and I have all sorts of questions, but why do you feel it's important to tell your story? Um, so we'll talk a little bit about my, my journey um, into yoga, but bottom line, um, I got to a point with Kundalini yoga where, you know, I saw that the emperor had no clothes and was at that crossroads that you are at often as a woman of color in the United States, where you ask yourself, is this worth the headache? Is it worth, <laughs> is it worth the fight? Often you, you, you know, you're just like, whatever, let people do what they do. And you keep on your way because speaking out tends to be problematic and have consequences and often can feel quite um, dangerous for, for those speaking out, you know? Um, but I got to a point where I, I just refused to do things because, you know, Yogi Bhajan said so, or this is the way it's always been done, especially because this is my heritage. This is my culture. Um, I feel almost an obligation and a responsibility to speak up. This idea that, oh, no one knew this was happening. Mm, mm, mm. Um, I'm sorry, but you know, growing up in India, I kind of knew some of this stuff. So yeah. Yeah. Well said. Thank you. Thank you for giving us a lens into that. Um, Where do you want to start? Do you want to take it back to give us some perspective um, into being of South Asian descent, growing up in yoga spaces and what it means to really have grown marinated in yoga? Or do you want to start a little bit more in the Kundalini space? Like where, where do you want to start? No, I, I think it, it helps to kind of understand where I'm, you know, coming from. Um, so my mom was a yoga teacher. And uh, as a result, I went to uh, yoga camp every summer. I absolutely hated it. Uh, I detested when my mother went away for, you know, the refresh retreats with her uh, her yoga community because she would come back and it would be like refined sugars, poison, like all the yummy things in the house would disappear. Um, spices would disappear. Like it was ridiculous. Um, so I didn't love the whole yoga vibe. <laughs> and um, I was a classical dancer and I think I just had a lot of energy. So that's where I put it. Um, but that being said, yoga was very much part of life. You know, you knew what pranayam to do before you walked into a test. You knew what pranayam to do when you were about to slap your brother. You um, you kind of, it, it was very much, um, I remember something as simple as what we ate in the morning 
um, it was different for me and my siblings because we have different doshas, you know? So it, her, uh, my mother's approach to yoga was very old school traditional, right? Like very strict and traditional. Um, and, you know, when we moved here to the United States, I remember finding yoga studios really confusing and weird because first of all, it was very much uh, just about postural yoga. So let's just put it this way. This idea that you just like pop into a class for an hour, do some poses and leave, and that's you know, yoga practice. Um, that was confusing to me. I remember the first time I went to a yoga class, they asked me if I wanted to rent a mat. And I remember being really confused by that because we did yoga on the floor, you know, like this idea that there was a, a sticky mat. And um, I, I just remember thinking like, wow, what, ama what amazing American marketing. Like the best thing we had as a mat when we were kids were, you know, when you saw like the hardcore rishis and yogis that like would walk up and down from north to south of India. They used to carry like this little animal skin, right? Like that's as, as fancy as it got, you know, a ratty old animal skin. Um, I just, it, it was really funny to me. I walked in wearing, you know, traditional Indian clothing, uh, you know, cotton salar for me because that's what you wear, loose clothing, that's cotton. And I remember walking in and not understanding all of the lycra and just, it, it, it clearly wasn't a space where I was welcome. And this cycle of missing that aspect of, of um, you know, when you're in the United States and you immigrate here, you lose your festivals. You, you Not only do you lose your family and friends and have to start over, but you also lose things like your holidays. You lose things like, um, your language, you know, just being able to speak um, becomes, you get really thrilled when you turn on the television and hear something that's not in English because it's such a, such a gift, you know? Mm. Um, so for me, I would every couple of years <laughs> try to, I would try a new yoga practice just because I missed it. Right. And, um, and I was living in New York at the time and New York, you know, is like the, it's like, aside from LA it's like the trendy yoga you know every couple of years it was a new thing you know like one year everybody was obsessed with Kripalu and one year it was Ashtanga and one year it was Vinyasa and one year it was Bikram and um and I would try these things and just always leave actually angry and it's only now later as an adult that I realized I was angry because it irritated me that someone would be that condescending and try to tell me about my culture or say some really ridiculous, ignorant things. And, you know, so as a result, as an adult, um, my attitude has been, I hate yoga. I will not go to a yoga class. It's not happening. You know, that's just the way we roll. Um, also didn't help that when I was a teenager, my dad joined a cult. Um, and, that was for me personally, a really big sort of moment in um, my own development because growing up, my mother had been the more, um, the more traditional parent, right? She's the one who listened to Hindi music. She's the reason we knew mantras. She's the reason we did yoga. Um, my dad was much more Western leaning, right? Like 
he wore Western clothes. Um, you know, we used to joke that there were things in Hindi and Punjabi and in Sindhi that he just couldn't pronounce. He sounded like a British tax collector when he tried to speak certain words. Um, so to suddenly have my dad become this hardcore, you know, orthodox Hindu was deeply disturbing. Mm. Um, and, you know, if you went into a Shivananda center or or something and there was all of this kirtan and it, it was just re-traumatizing for me just on a personal level. So it was just better for me <laughs> if I just stayed away from yoga. And that was how it went for a very long time. Um, in 2015, my mom passed away and my mom passed away on New Year's Eve. Uh, my dad passed away in 2015 as well. And especially because my mom passed away on New Year's Eve, she would, uh, you know, she would say, oh, I don't want everybody sitting around and, you know, being, go out, celebrate, you know, it's New Year's Eve, think about me, eat my favorite foods, you know, have, have a good time. Um, it's hard to do when you're a kid, right? Like, it sounds like that's how I'm going to honor my mother. And then I would throw a party and serve all of her favorite Indian food. And then I would end up upstairs crying by the end of it. So at one point, I was like, you know what? Uh, instead of going to, uh, I, I mean, bar party situation is just not going to work for me. I want to do something a little bit more spiritual. So I started to look for meditations that I could go to. Um, when I was living in New York, that was really easy to do. Um, in DC, it was a little bit harder. And uh, all the research, I wanted it to be at midnight. Uh, all the research I did, there were two sort of options that fit. One was a Bikram yoga class, and I know enough about Bikram to not want to support that at all. Um, the other class was kind of phrased as a yoga to yoga and meditation session to bring in the new year. So I'm recalling the studio and asking like, really, what would you say is your yoga to meditation ratio? <laughs> you know, like, because I'm like, I'm not sitting here. <laughs> sitting through yoga like just you know let's just breathe and that's it like I'm anyway so I go to the yoga studio uh, they start doing Surya Namaskar and that just boils my blood because it is after sunset like my mother would have slapped me if I did a Surya Namaskar in the evening like that's a dawn thing you want to do something in the evening you do a Chandra Namaskar like just these are the kinds of things that irritate me right because like when you're raised with it these things stand out to you, you know? Um, so anyway, I go to this yoga class. They start doing Surya Namaskars. I keep looking at the door, trying to figure out, like, how quickly I can get my gear up and leave. Um, you know, and how many people I would have to, like, hop over and, like, how mortifying it would be. But <laughs> So I'm kind of mentally charting that. And I tell myself, okay, like, there's going to be a break halfway through, so I'm going to bounce then. Like, you know, I'm going to be really chill and polite here because the rest of these people really seem to be enjoying this so I'm gonna keep it together <laughs> I'm gonna let these people have their experience but I'm leaving um and uh and then something really fascinating happens because we start doing things that I have never done in yoga um <laughs> I have friends in the military who describe it as so you were basically in stress positions for like 11 minutes and I was like yeah kind of um and it was very different from any of the other yogas that 
I had grown up with or any of the other yogas that I had seen develop in the West, right? Like it was totally different. And then um, the Mool Mantra starts, like we, we start listening to the Mool Mantra. So, so I have these two Orthodox parents, right? My safe space is my elders who were, you know, took us to Gurdwaras and we went to Langar and, you know, you went to Prabhat Ferry in the morning. So when I listen to the Mool Mantra, I think about grandmothers and grand aunts and that safety of falling asleep in their lap at Harmindar Sahab and Amritsar. It's a really different, you know what I mean? Like it's, it's very, yes. it's not triggering at all. It was like really soothing. soothing. Mm. Yeah. Soothing and also for me, the right kind of nostalgia. Yes. You know, like not just triggered, but like, oh, you know, oh my God. Um, so I don't leave at intermission. I stick with it. Um, and I find this entire experience alternatively hilarious because there are times when we're like, banging our hands against the floor and I'm just giggling thinking what have these Americans come up with now and then there's the other pieces of it that I just love right and so I'm like okay what is this at the end of the class I approach the teacher who's now you know become a very dear friend and um I ask her you know what is it what, what is this what are we doing and uh she tells me it's kundalini yoga so I start taking kundalini yoga classes and um it's an interesting experience for me because, um, okay, so one of my earliest classes, we do Kirtankriya, right, where we go Satanama. Okay, so Satanam is a thing that, of course, I'm totally familiar with. Satanam is what you say when, you know, someone passes away in the family and they bring in the Guru Granth Sahib and there's like chanting all day, but when you walk into the room, you say Satanam, like... You know, it's not unknown to me, but this idea that like, well, sa means the sun and da means rebirth and na and ma. I remember thinking like, wait, where where are they getting it from? Because that's not what it means in Punjabi. And that's not what it means in Sanskrit. So where are they getting it from? Um, so at the end of it, I asked my teacher and she's like, oh, yeah, this is, you know, what the book says. Um and I'm like, okay, do you have any idea, like, where is it coming from? She'd be like, oh, you know, it's just, it's in the manual. And I was like, okay. Um, this kind of stuff keeps happening. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so once again, as a woman of color, you all, you're in a yoga class, which is supposed to be a space of tranquility. Um, so there are times when these things happen that irritate the crap out of you when you know that you're being, forgive my language, but bullshitted. Yeah. Um, and you sit there and you think, okay, am I gonna ruin the experience of everybody else that looks like totally blissed out? You know, or am I just gonna, you know, just get through it, right? Um, or like things like when people say chakra, what is with that, by the way? Why, why is it a chakra? <laughs> you can say change. So you can say chakra. Like, why is it a chakra? So the first time they said chakra, I literally was like, so chakra is branch. So I'm like, wait, branch ra? What is branch ra? Like, what does that root mean? And, they're, they're like, and then you know, they say a couple more words and I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about chakras. 
So then I think, okay, this is just one teacher, maybe mispronounced it. Then I, you know, I'm like, everybody's calling it a shopa. I don't understand why. Um, every time I ask these questions, and most of the time I don't, because you make the decision that it's not worth it. Mm. Um, I'm going to pause you. It's not worth it because of the amount of emotional labor that you as a woman of color would have to go through to make that other person or that room understand. Right. Listeners, listen to that you know, inside, she has to decide whether or not to speak the truth about how horribly something's pronounced or the way something's being said or the meaning that something's been given to something in her own rooted historical history, her own language. And she's being white splained by, I'm assuming, white teachers. And it could be anybody of any color. But if you're learning out of a book and you don't know the historical root systems, I just want to go back to as a woman of color of South Asian descent, specifically, you have to make that ongoing reel of a decision in every Mm -hmm. moment of your being by being in that room. Yep. And it's the same kind of, you know, discussion where when you are at your workplace and someone says something deeply misogynist, you have to figure out how and if you're going to bring it up at this time. Um, that mental calculus, it's, it's ridiculous. It's something that I'm sure your listeners of, of color will be like, oh, yes, we know that. Um, most women also know, you know, there are times when your in-laws say something really misogynist and you have to ask yourself, is this a good time for me to bring this up at Thanksgiving or should I just shut up and let it pass, right? Like, that's what, Kundalini class was like sometimes. Mm, mm. Um, the Satanama thing, it's like life, death, rebirth. And it's like it, what you're saying is Satanam, right? Satanam means me? something. But then to yes. break up Satanama as if it means something entirely different, you would think that you could, you would trace that root word of Satanama right. to, yeah. and you're saying it didn't trace yes. to Sanskrit, it didn't, it didn't trace to, Gurjabi, Gurbani, nothing. It just is evaporated. And then we all just repeat it because that's what we were told in Kundalini teacher training. Right. And then, you know, um, I always thought the singing of the longtime song was really hokey and funny because once again, um, if you believe in, in Barnic religions, time is eternal and there's no such thing as a longtime song because even the sun is a blip. It is just a moment and it is Maya, right? So this idea that there's a long time sun, I remember being like, what long time sun? Like what long time sun? Like, you know, my parents would, when I would sit down, I would complain about how my feet hurt when I was dancing. They would say, you took on this discipline and it takes many lives to get it together. So you decide if you're going to do it or not. Like I'm so used to this, this idea of Maya and eternity and and you know so this idea of long time sun I just thought was really hokey um I thought it was some like hippie addition to the yoga um and every time in the moments where I felt safe enough after class to go and have the conversation with the teacher um I never got an answer that was satisfactory and the best I got was hey you should really take the training, right? Like you, you should take the training. That's where they'll answer all of this stuff. And I'm thinking about it. And then the book comes out. Uh, the Premka book comes out. And I just, I remember, that's the first time I had heard the name Yogi Bhajan, okay? Because the studios I had gone to 
were not like places where Yogi Bhajan's picture was framed or, you know what I mean? Like that was not a thing. Right. It wasn't like overly quoting YB. They weren't like no. super gung ho in that. They were just more like no. integrating Kundalini yoga into right. the studios. Yep. And they would say things like the ancients say, or, and I'm like, I'm sorry, which please you need to explain to me. These are my ancients, right? You just need to explain to me. Like we are billions of people. There's no one lineage of yoga. There's no like, I studied South Asian history in grad school. Like it, it, it's, please don't like, don't, don't just throw shit out there. I'm like, no, but the answer was always the book says, the book says, the book says. Um, and so they're like, take the teacher training. And then the Pranka book comes out. That's the first time I hear about this person, Yogi Bhajan. And uh, first of all, I think to myself, like, I'm just like, this desi uncle is some, you know, <laughs> some balls, this man. Because he calls this beautiful woman, the name he gives her is Premka. Premka means lover. And it's it's like a kind of salacious lover. It's not like saying, you know, you're my girlfriend. It's it's like, you're my side dish. You're my, it's, it's not a nice word. And I thought, oh man, right from the beginning, he had like figured out that this beautiful blonde woman was going to be, he was going to seduce her. That was his plan. That's why he called her Premka. Um mm. And, and, the, and the book, I remember reading the book and I remember it was actually, I think, in hindsight, a really anodyne book. And I feel like she, at least in the book, it seems like she takes a lot of responsibility for her own actions without like, without saying, um, you know, without saying that we were in a power position. She describes herself as I was attracted to him. I was yada yada. And it's not until she starts to see the duplicity, you know? And even then her decision, she it just, it fascinated me how, honestly, how anodyne I thought it was. And I, I thought that the graciousness of her saying, you know, I hope he, in his, in whatever plane he is, I thought what, like what a kind, good soul to like have that kind of compassion, I would have, like if this had happened to my daughter, I would have killed someone, you know? Like I would have gone nuts. But I read the book and I'm like, mm, now I especially am having serious thoughts about, um, you know, the entire Kundalini situation, the idea of teacher training. Uh, and then of course I go down the, you know, rabbit hole of, you know, Yogi Bhajan. And then it's like, oh, Bhajan Singh Puri, you know, customs guy. Earlier, he says, Dhirendra Brahmachari is his teacher. We all know Dhirendra Brahmachari if you've grown up in India. He was called the flying yogi. He was the former prime minister's yoga teacher. He had a program on Doodarshan every morning that taught us yoga. Um, you know, he, he was like a known person, right? Like, um, then he talks about Virsa Singh. If you've ever spent time in Delhi, you realize that there is, you know, traditional Khalsa Sikh identity. And then there's always been these other groups where there's some kind of spiritual leader. And Virta Singh is one of them, right? So when he says these names, these names, you know, I'm like, oh, okay. So that's where his lineage is from because I find the yoga very fascinating. I've never seen, you know, Sikh mantras put together with yoga, which tends to be a very like, Sanskrit rooted practice 
not always because in Tibet it's you know it's a different canon um in Nepal it's a different canon but moral of the story this kind of amalgamation I had never seen so the book comes out I'm like eh, you know I mm, no thank you um and at that point so now we're it's 2020 we're in the pandemic um one of my teachers reaches out and says, hey, so I'm gonna, you know, put you, and this is someone I've been very honest with about like, I don't know this, this, you know, I, I don't like this power dynamic and I'm not sure how I feel about it. And I'm curious, I wanna learn more, but at the same time, like it, it icks me out. Um, and she said, uh, hey, um, there is, so KRI is making this effort. I'm like, who's KRI? There are the people that, you know, they're the Kundalini Research Institute. They're the ones who run the teacher trainings. And like, this is like from the center, right? So you're not taking it with teachers out on the planet. This is one of their programs. Like source uh, info, like indeed. kind of the concept is like, wow, yes. as you branch out to teachers that teach teachers that teach teachers, you're not getting the source. But if you take it from KRI, KRI. you're getting it direct. Okay. Right. Right. And um, and it was also marketed as this is a new textbook. This is after the Olive Branch stuff came out. Um, it was marketed as trauma-informed. It was supposed to be diverse. It wasn't like one of those things where you sign up for teacher training and they take you. Like we had to have applications and I had to have a teacher recommend me. And then I had an interview and then I had to explain where I was in my yoga practice, um, which I realized in hindsight is not a lot of other people's teacher training experience. They say, I want to take teacher training. They say, come on in, right? Um, this was like trying to get into, you know, not like university, but trying to get into a prep school, right? Like you do have to, you have to have your bona fides down packed. So that makes me think, okay, so this is serious global cohort. It's full of students. The first day I go in, um, there are students from literally like all over the planet. I've got students, there are people from Bangladesh, from Saudi Arabia, from Egypt, um, Spain and and from the US they had been South Africa they'd been very mindful that there were only three Americans allowed and all three of us were women of color and I thought okay they, they mean it they mean this supporting diversity situation um and I was wrong uh <laughs> the training was not um trauma-informed or um just because it was with KRI didn't mean that it was, um, you know, that there was, the answer was still because Yogi Bhajan said so. The, and I remember I went to some, one of the other teachers and I said, can I see your textbook? And the textbook is the same, except there's this blurb. And whereas in the old textbook, it says Yogi Bhajan 1978 Espinola. Um, my textbooks, there was no quotation marks. It's just in first person, but there's no source. It's not sourced to anyone. Um, so there's still the quote, just not the quote of the person who's quoting, just the quote. Yes, exactly. So, so it's the, like so, the ancient speaking. <laughs> yes, but it's always I. You know what I mean? It, that oh, stuff it's wasn't still, taken care of, mm. right? Like 
you know, things like this is a technology you have to get. I just thought like, oh, it's fascinating. They haven't, they, you know, like it, it wasn't like um, somebody had gone back and really edited, you know, massive pieces of it. It was almost like they plastered on this, you know, hey, most likely did things. And I'm like, most likely, like, all right, people, like most likely. Okay. <laughs> and yeah, yeah problematic language, the problematic language of that, right? not just problematic, like just rubbish, like making shit up. Like we're sitting there in class and they're like, oh, we're gonna, you know, chant this. We're gonna practice mantras. And we're, they're like, oh, why yanti, karyanti. And then it's delightful when you have white people correcting your pronunciation of why yanti, karyanti. <laughs> uh, or it's, it's satanama. I'm like, no, it is satanama. Okay. Do not tell me it's satanama. Like, Listen, man, like back up. But <laughs> the, the worst part was, it's like, oh, this is, so something as simple as like, okay, why yanti karyanti? Okay, this is from Patanjali. Really? Because Lord knows I have read four versions of Patanjali, including, you know, in like the original, very archaic language where it's extremely painful to read because that was just, part of our upbringing i'm like where 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 does where is this mantra like there are no mantras in patanjali it's all about you know consciousness and chitta and, and it's a very dense but short succinct text and like this idea that oh this is a patanjali so i'm like wh where is it like in which patanjali sutra is this you know like do you know of a sutra that i don't know like you know you have that humility when you first go in, right? Because sure. you're, you're there as a student. So you ask the question and you're like, wait, which sutra? There was never any answer. Um, pavan, 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 Guru, Wahe Guru. Oh, that is from the Guru Granth Sahib. Wait, no. In the Guru Granth Sahib, it's, you know, Pavan Guru, Pani Pitta. It's a very different. So what I started to realize is that it was almost like like Har is not something you hear a lot in Sikhi, but Har, that chant, comes from Shavai Tantra. Har Har Mahadev, you know. Um, there are just, there are some things that are clearly from Sikhi, but sometimes it's almost like he takes a piece from here and a piece from there and kind of amalgamates it and puts it together. Hmm. Um, that starts to become very clear to me. Then, uh, and we are still, I'm still in the, I'm going to be quiet and, you know, let other people have their experience part of the training. Uh, and then one day, they turn on a video of Yogi Bhajan leading a training. And I loved the faces of everybody, like, because he sounded like Drunken Daisy Uncle. Like, you know, that's the uncle who starts to like, you know, that's it's time that the, you know, that the wedding reception is over because Drunk Uncle is now talking about Hindu nationalism. So that's when you bounce, right? That's when you're like, oh, Drunk Uncle is talking. It's time to go. Party's over. You know, it was like that, except that there was this like audience of rapt people just like, just bullying them, you know, and just saying ridiculous 
ridiculous things. And that was the moment where things kind of switched for the rest of the class. Um, I had all of these, like, the students from Saudi Arabia going, so one of the women was a physician, okay? And she's all like, who's this crazy man? I'm going to you know, and we're learning, man. It was nuts, right? She was like horrified. She was like, who is this? And I'm like, this is Yogi Bhajan. Yeah. Um, I couldn't, first of all, I remember just being like, I cannot believe the unmitigated gall after saying trauma-informed, blah, blah, blah. You know, you're making us watch a Kriya by Yogi Bhajan. I was just like, you are kidding me. Like, how is this now traumatizing to anybody that's been, Anybody that's like done a simple Google search um, has been a victim of sexual violence. Like, how could you do this to people? On the same <laughs> year that the Olive Ranch report has come out, right, where he's a known predator and they're advertising themselves as trauma informed, you know, right. and after the Olive Branch where they're, you safe know, putting space. to get safe space, they're, you they're, know, you know uh, in equality. Equity, you know, oh, yeah. Equity, you know, not, not, no, no, we're, we're very embracing of LGBTQI lifestyles. And, and then at the same time, they're like, oh, when you're preparing for the next class, you can go into the live, you know, the library of teachings and you come across the thing where he's like, let me tell you about rape. And I'm like, oh, no. Or he says things like, no one, it's just the things that he says, right? And I'm like, that's still there, okay? There's no trigger warning. There's no whatever. And his words are still being taught verbatim. 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 When I bring it up and I ask, because at this point now, the cow is out of the barn. Like, you know, I mean, it's done. Like, the rest of the women are like, so suddenly, then we have our session on the history of, of yoga. And... Yeah, I basically did the lecture because the person just kept making errors. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not when Guru Nanak was born. No, 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 no. That didn't happen until this century. No, that was because there were these kings. Well, he like martyred means this, you, you know, like just no context, right? Like it didn't have context of the alleged history that they were teaching. Definitely no context of um, <laughs> overall, like, history of yoga. And yoga has, you know, a mythical uh, story. And it also has the real sort of cultural, socio-historical, uh, but neither of those was really touched upon. Mm. So this ends up becoming me hanging out with everyone after the class. And I'm like, okay, here, here's what, it, no. Like, and let me show, read this book, read that book. This is, you know, mm, like it's out there like you know just so it was offensive because it was clear that these people that were getting paid tons of money to teach these things didn't know what they were talking about they would straight out lie to people we had several students who were training to be teachers who were muslim and i've lived in the middle east i'm not muslim but i understand some of the fundamentals of islam and the spoken word, the recited word, is extremely important. It's the same thing as like, ad such, jugar such, jap, you know, recite. It is that tradition of remembering and reciting is, is very big in certain cultures. And it's, a, it's 
very, very big in Islam, where, you know, the way you declare your faith is by declaring the Shahada. Mm. So one of these very bright women from the Middle East says, hey, I wanted to ask, how do we explain to our students these mantras? Because some of them are concerned that they are uh, venerating other gods. And I just sit back and I'm like, let's see how this goes. Um, and just lies. Like, oh, no, these are just words. They don't mean anything. Guru just means something that takes you from light to dark. I'm like, in which language does it mean this? Like, I've never heard that definition of guru. If you look it up on the internet, every place that says guru is just light from dark are all people that are either trained by KRI, affiliated with 3HO, anywhere else you don't find this purported meaning, right? It's, it's, it's wild. And you tune in with Om Namo Guru Dev Namo. I bow to the guru who is like God. How is that not, to someone who really believes that when you say words, they have power and it means allegiance, how do you lie to your students and then have them go out and lie to others when they're asking them, you know, if this is supposed to be a culturally informed training, mm -hmm. um, you, you know, you, you go to another yoga class, they'll say, we're going to tune in with Om, join me if you like. No, that's not what you say in the Kundalini classes. Everybody has to say it like this. Um, it was just things like that. And it was clearly by the end of it, um, you know, two other African-American women, one of, is a professor, like just the racism, the condes just the condescendingness. I remember the South Africans got furious about the sexuality thing that we did. And I remember when we talked about sexuality, that's when I was like, are we going to talk about you know, the drama around, you know, um, all the sexual abuse that has just been revealed right. this year. Right. So like, if we're going to talk about, you know, oh, this arc line is this, I'm like, first of all, I have not seen that in any other text. Okay. There are things in Kara books and Trietro books that I cannot find in any other yogic dharmic tradition. I do not know where it's coming from. No one can explain to me where it's coming from. There are some things that are borrowed from Surat Shabd Yoga. There are some things that are borrowed from Kashmiri Shaivite tradition. There are some things that are definitely borrowed from Dhirendra Brahmachari's Bengal Tantra school. But there's also things he's just legit made up. Mm. You know? Um, and yet these senior teachers that are running this global cohort don't actually have a sourced answer for where something comes from. When you ask something very pointed, which a lot of us wouldn't know how to ask, right? If we got given an, an answer like Gu is darkness and Ru is light. And when you tune in, it just means that you're bowing to the divine wisdom that's within you. And you hear some sort of parroted teacher source like that. You're pointing out that words do matter and the vibration of sound and the words in which you're vibrating yeah. are evoking something. And in lots and lots of traditions worldwide, that is true. And even to point out in Islam how the word and, and what's being said to understand the cultural context of an ethos of culture. Yeah. 
and mm-hmm. and even the pronunciation of chak- chakra versus chakra and that it can mean something else different it means something completely different when you make it a shock shock you, means suspicion uh, uh it means to doubt someone um and and shaka means branch like so i'm sitting there going through all the different roots right and i'm like where is this coming from i know enough of my own history that i'm aware that punjabi if you go to the golden temple if you go to harmandir sahab even today the carvings are both in gurbani and in old school punjabi which was written in the persio arabic script okay which i can read because i'm a nerd this idea that like this is coming from some source but the sources are right here like you know historical details of namaji's life and every they're they're you know it was like the 16th century there's like the exact location where guru nanak was born and there are pilgrims that go from India to Pakistan to Pakistani Punjab every year there's a certain amount of visas of people that go do the you know go do the pilgrimage and come back because the, these are not it's not something that's like oh in you know 900 BC um this happened like if you're saying it is from Sikhi then you should be able to point out which of the books it's in mm. um or just say i don't know um but to <laughs> have this arrogance of the golden lineage if one more person says golden chain to me so help me kali i will lose my mind it, it's just it's things like this but i'm like you would be at depa so go ahead and tell us about the golden chain for it go in in illuminate oh my god okay first of all in no yoga is there a golden chain okay the best you get the best like linear explanation you get is that once long long time ago in the mountains there were a bunch of rishis seven of them they were meditating and they saw this other very handsome very like tough but kind of like intimidating man you know tall dark very handsome um and he just looks really peaceful and really on top of it really powerful so they go up to him and they're like hey you seem to know what you're doing he's doing yoga so they're like could you teach us and he's like no get away from me um so then he says to them You know what if you do these pranayams for a thousand years then I will teach you. So they do it for a thousand years because you know myth um they do it for a thousand years and then he teaches these seven rishis. This person who teaches is Adiyogi Shiva. And the seven rishis have seven different dhams uh points in India literally is like a vertebrae that runs from Kashmir all the way down to Kanyakumari. Um there there's like a tradition of how they go from place to place. The four months of the monsoon is when they don't go from place to place. They have a very ascetic lifestyle. And from each of those different rishi traditions more things have have evolved. So, you know, even looking at sort of the the ayangar school right first it's like there are there are x amount of asanas no 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 now there are 84 asanas no 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 now there's 98 asanas like there's no golden chain at best it's like a really tangled golden boot system um where we're all kind of you know enmeshed i just 
<laughs> enmeshed, yeah. But but to me, there was just some stuff. Anyway, moral of the story, by the time I got done with the training, I wish like I would not tune in with Ong Namon Guru Dev Namon. Because I do not think that this guru dude is like God. I won't do it. I won't ask other people to do it with me if they're taking the class. I will not sing long time song. Um, and I get that I'm in a very privileged position because I know what those words mean. And also, I'm very lucky that I have family that encourages my nerdiness. So when I go and I say, where is this in, you know, where is this in the Guru Granth Sahib? And it's like, no, no, it's not this, it's that. Oh, okay. Wait, so I've been taught to do, you know, this Kriya this way. But in this different Kundalini Tantra tradition, you're doing it this way. Why? I'm lucky in that, A, I had parents that were willing to have those conversations slash arguments with me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm lucky that, you know, I went to graduate school in this country. And as a result, um, there are Sanskrit scholars and Hindustani scholars and just folks that I can reach out to and say, hey, can you, um, I know you're a scholar of yada yada. Hey, do you know where I can get a book on this? And they're all very lovely about sharing that kind of information. Um, you know, I, I can read my own languages, right? Like not all, because India has 3,800 million of them, but like some, and luckily for me, this particular Kundalini tradition um, is in languages that I know. So if you're going to tell me things like Vayanti, Karyantis, and Patanjali, I need you to show me, in, and I know that there's versions of Patanjali, but any of the versions, if you could show me, that would be grand. Like I would couldn't. shut up and go with it. No, they couldn't. And then there's just, it just got to the point where I'm like, I'm not tuning in with Om Namo Buddha Dev Namo. Uh, and I'm not doing White Tantra. So if that means that I don't complete my teacher training, that's fine. Kindly refund me. Uh, or you're going to, I have done every assignment. I have done absolutely everything. So you're going to give me my teaching certificate. Um, that doesn't mean that, you know, it, it didn't end there, right? Like, it's not like, it's not like I went back and taught Kundalini or the way here I taught it. Because then after having gone through that experience, you're like, yeah, I know how it feels to be bullshit. And I'm not going to bamboozle these people that come to my class and repeat this nonsense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know? Um, yeah, and I want listeners to hear that a part of the teacher training system is that you they build in that you have to do a full day of white tantric as a part of graduating. But because of the way the cohorts work, you know, you you might graduate, take your quote official test, but then there might not be a white tantric coming for a couple months. But in general, a part of the requirements is you have to schedule at one of those white tantrics. So I know that anybody that goes to teacher training is required to quote do that, just like. You're required. They literally have, and I'm, I'm curious if you had that in yours too. They have the thing at the end that you're supposed to sign. They're like, yes, I'll wear a turban when I teach. Yes, I'll, I'll do all those things. Oh yeah. I need you to go back. I need you to, yeah, I'm going to bring up all the things. Okay, now I need my hand because now I want to talk about the turban. Yeah. Okay. So a turban in my tradition, it is a symbol of honor. 
okay? You walk into a temple, you cover your head with, you know, your dupatta, with your scarf, with even like men will sometimes put their handkerchiefs on their heads out of respect. But a pagari, a turban, a tied turban is not something, it's not like an outfit, it's not like a costume you take on and off. It is a symbol of your covenant with God. It is such a symbol of honor that the word for collateral in um, mm. even today, when you talk about like, I'm trying to buy this house, I need collateral. The word that they use is pagri. So my pagri was this many lakhs. My pagris was this. Which like, means turban. Still, yes. Because pagri means what I stand for. This is my truth. This is like the ultimate symbol. Mm. This idea that you take it on and you take it off. I don't like, I'm like, no, sorry. So we had a pagri tying thing in class where they decided to teach us how to tie a pagri. I lost my damn mind. I just wouldn't do it. And I'm like, you can come over and try to go ahead, go ahead, touch me and try to tie the pagri on me. Go ahead. I dare you. <laughs> like, don't you dare. It was things like that. Like, I just thought, you know, there's cash, okay, but there's also kanga, kacha, there's all these other. Kirpan, there's so it's like cherry picking the things that you want out of this religion. Oh my God, so well said. Because in teacher training, they're making you wear a turban, right? But then there's cash. Well, they do try to tell people to stop cutting their hair. Yes, um, you know, so that's in infused in teacher training. But yeah, you know, like there's kateras, then there's the kanga, and then there's the kirpan, and. I've talked about it and I'm curious your lens. I've talked about it. It's almost like teacher training is like the beginning of a marketing funnel to become uh Sikhi, you know, where people are like the ultimate right. path is this path, but they're saying, Oh right. no, you can do the yoga without doing that. But it's implied that the ultimate path is that path. And yet what you're pointing right. out is it's not all of the actual Sikhi practices. It's just certain ones that have been coagulated to mean something within the three HO context. Right. It's it's like even if you if you really want to drill down and if you really want to torture yourself by listening to those old lectures and reading the transcriptions and stuff, you see the story change, right? One day it's this guru, then it's another guru, then he goes to India and clearly had a falling out. So then now that guru is no longer cool. Um, so then it becomes, then there's a brand new person called Leland Poe, and he has a dream about this person. And as a result, like uh, now he's the Mahantantric. I'm like, well, he's the Mahantantric. I'm the princess of the unicorns because I had a dream that a unicorn came to me. And so, I'm like, come on, even his own story unravels. You, you listen to his, you know, and that's the thing. I feel like that was why it was hard for me, right? Because I kept wanting to give it a shot. I kept wanting to believe that they were serious when they said trauma-informed, um, that they were serious about not saying deeply offensive gendered things. Um, and they did. They absolutely did. They said things that were offensive. I remember there was a young gay man in our class that like didn't appreciate, you know, it, it, it that stuff hasn't changed. Um, the worst part is this bigoted stuff that is spouted as Kundalini yoga or Sikhi. You can't find in any of the other Kundalini yoga Sikhi sources. 
right? This idea like, oh, if a woman has sex, she loses this, but if a man does that, where, 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 where? where? Show me which tantric test says this. Show me which, just anyone, point anyone, one, 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 anything that like goes, that happened before 1960 that you wrote or had, you know, your students write for you. That's the part that kind of, Mm. it, it, it was disheartening because I remember I really had this moment where I thought, okay, they're, they're trying, they're going to get it together. Uh, and my teacher training was supposed to be the moment where they were going to show us the new way. Mm-hmm. There is no, no new way. It's just a paragraph that says, you know, and then you sign that ethical thing about how, you know, if you're a teacher, you will do this and that. I'm like, he didn't do any of these things. Like, Historical fact. Yep. You're cherry picking out of things. You do things like in the middle of a, you're doing yoga. Suddenly you're chanting the thing of Japji. Then you go back to yoga. I'm sorry, but would you, I don't know, in the middle of a step aerobic class, suddenly start reciting part of the Catholic litany and then go back to doing step aerobics? Would that be appropriate? Would that be offensive to people? So why is it okay to do it with my culture? Mm. Like why? Mm. We get married around the Guru Granth Sahib. It, it's it's like a it's 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 a it's sacrament, you know. Like it, it's the um, that sword that you carry. Like do you know in wedding ceremonies, when in Sikh ceremonies when someone is getting married, um, a person is asked to come and hold a sword between the two, the bride and the groom, and the symbol in my hand. Like I'm goosebumps because it means so much to me. Because that person is supposed to love equally the groom and the bride. So you're literally saying this person will negotiate. This will be our, like the, the, the person that's like entrusted with the health of this marriage. Mm. That sword means something. That kifan means something. That book means something. That japji means something. It means something. It's not just, you know, cute little sounds that you sing and then, um, and once again, I absolutely see that there are people within 3HO that really embraced Sikhi and walked away from the yoga, walked away from 3HO. And if this was a path for them to find that, wonderful. But this like masala, half this, half that, take responsibility for the fact that it is racist, made up, and unfair to do it's unfair to continue to do this today Mm. Mm. the cherry picking the masala yoga it's like extracting it's like extractive colonialism it's just Mm -hmm. picking what you want and then putting it together and calling it something else and i've talked a lot about this on these podcasts over the years um that my entire identity was formed as a coagulation of falsities you know there might be some sources of truths that i have to pull back but in and of itself, the identity was a lie. Absolutely. Like, okay, so one of the most intense things, so while I was reading a book, um, in the 80s, my dad, his factory was in Delhi. We spent a lot of time in Delhi. And when we took holidays, often we went up to Masuri, through the, through the hills. And I remember at one point in Masuri, 
Uh, Missouri has some like wonderful boarding schools, right? It has Woodstock and, you know, wonderful boarding schools. Um, going back to like colonial times, gorgeous campuses, lovely. Um, so my dad is like, hey, you want to check out some of these schools? Um, and my mother, <laughs> so we're walking past and we see these little white kids who look emaciated. They were not dressed the way the other kids were dressed in uniform. They looked like their, their you know, their judas were bigger than their heads. Um, and they were wearing what my mother would politely call a jabba, like a shapeless sack, compared to the rest of the students who were dressed very smartly. And I see these, and I, and I remember that they were, some of them must have been my age, but some of them were definitely younger than me. And when my father's like, hey, should we go check out some of these schools? We're up in Missouri. Why don't we go check them out? My mother, in a very, very joking tone, goes, yeah, maybe we'll send you to the Gora Sikh school, the white Sikh school. Because it was known that those were torture chambers for the kids. Like, wow. it was known. Okay? This idea that, like, no one knew. I was like, people in India knew. Because these kids were, like, isolated from everybody else. Um, you know, they their schools were, we didn't understand what system they were in because they weren't in the SSC system or the ICSE system, or, you know, we didn't understand if it was like American school because they didn't stick to any of those standards for these kids. And this idea that, oh, what's, it's bygone is bygone, let's move forward. I really want to talk about those kids though, because my heart goes out to, to them. Like they're the ones who dealt with the worst of it. And the fact that, you know, I'm like, I refuse to ever do any training with KRI. I'm not giving them any more of my money because I know that they're not using this money to take care of their own. And not only is it horribly racist, but just ethically, like I don't wanna be part of this systemic awful you know and mm -hmm. there are things like you, you when you start reading other kundalini yoga traditions right you'll notice that in every other in every other tantric tradition where you're the the, the aim is to raise the kundalini you always start with the ajna chakra to stabilize the person and only once, after years of stabilizing the person and doing the postures, do you start doing some of the stuff of starting to like, you know, tap into the Muladhara chakra. You look at these books from Yogi Bhajan, and there's a lot of lower chakra stuff. And there's no like pranayama at the beginning. There's a physical warm up, but there's not like that spiritual centering. Um, you do a meditation and you just go. There's no like, it's a, it's, a, it's a big experience. Um, you're supposed to give people time to decompress. Um, things like breath of fire, to do breath of breath. Okay, so in the yogic tradition, everybody's not born with, an, like you're not born with X amount of years, you're born with X amount of breaths. 
So how you use the breath is how, how long you live. So in every other yoga tradition, you try to slow the breath down. You try to become more efficient with the breath. It's only in Kundalini, in this version of Kundalini yoga, that you are literally making people hyperventilate with inhaling and exhaling with breath of fire. And it occurred to me, the reason there's all of this lower chakra stuff and the reason there's all of this breath of fire, it's basically to disorient and hurt and manipulate. It's beyond, oh yeah, it's some made up nonsense. It's also, it's made up nonsense that he clearly made up to hurt people. Yeah. It doesn't correspond with any other tradition. And he's not the first person that's, you know, talked about Kundalini yoga. If you go to India and I say, and say you studied KRI, they'll tell you, oh, that's neo-Western Kundalini. Like that's not real. And then he's, you know, he says things in his books, like Yogi Bhajan says things like, oh, we do not initiate. If you're not initiating, why does everybody have Sikh names? What, what are you doing, man? Like, what is happening here? It's, right. mm. it's awful. Mm. You brought <laughs> up the children. Um, you know, you had mentioned that to me about how us kids, the kids, but especially the kids that went to school in India got sent, which is so many that they've been used as collateral, that the children are the collateral of this Dharma. Absolutely. I sit there and, you know, I look at the amount of stuff on something like SeekNet, the amount of research. Um, because there is truth to the fact that some of this stuff is borrowed from the Odaisi Mahant tradition. Kernel of truth. But on top of that, there's all this Yogi Bhajan Masala. You see these beautifully researched, well locked, clearly has an Odaisi agenda, you know, a Khalsa Sikh. The Akali Thakthwatiki was salacious, but from this particular tradition, really well researched. And then you realize that the young person that put that website together almost single-handedly over years and years and years, never got compensated for their labor, never got, I mean, like, oh, wow, that was like a, you know, like a Nazi work camp, like a Soviet work camp. And these young people were just expected to do this. Um, they were expected to labor. They were expected to give their resources. They were supposed to, and, and they were supposed to be getting a community and spiritual enlightenment, but some of them straight out got raped and hurt and taken advantage of. Yeah. Yeah. And neglected and abandoned and, and, um, you know, grow up in a spiritual tradition, thinking that you're a growing up in a tradition, number one, but also mm -hmm. to grow up thinking you're learning consciousness, but you're really learning abandonment or you're learning neglect, you know, is such a distortion in the brain body because spiritual principles have been distorted to then manipulate and extract and to be used as collateral, which is a, a form of predatory behavior. But to use spiritual law, to use spiritual principles, to use real cultural, historical root systems and to bring it into this and to call it its own body of work to me is is mm -hmm. where I'm getting most disgusted as the story reveals mm -hmm. itself. Because you can speak to this. 
Kundalini is something that has long history. It's the energy and there's long roots. Is there real roots of Kundalini yoga outside of the way that YB has, has mushmashed it? Or is it just Kundalini, Kundalini energy that links to tantra no, traditions? There's, there's, so, okay, let me understand the question. Are you asking me if this thing that YB made up comes from any one of those traditions? Or no, is it but how about that Kundalini yoga itself outside of YB's referencing and everything he created? Mm -hmm. Is there root systems to something called Kundalini yoga or is it just Kundalini energy that's taught within different systems of say Tantra? So um, the latter is definitely true where lots of different Tantra traditions talk about awakening the kundalini um but i do know that in the 60s and the 70s there were other folks that taught kundalini yoga like shivananda for example and they taught because these are words that are so it's like me saying peace yoga right like peace can mean a lot of things right like it's, right. it's words that can be interpreted in so many different ways. Like you can have a bunch of people calling themselves a peace circle that, you know, go around and bomb abortion clinics. You know what I mean? Like, but they're yes. still calling themselves a peace circle. You can say you're, you know, I'm about human rights, but like, what does that mean, human rights? What does it mean to you? Right? So the Kundalini Shakti, it's talked about in lots of different traditions. This idea that there is this feminine, um, divine energy within us that we tap into. And some schools of yoga will tell you, you do not touch it. You do not mess with it. It is ridiculous. Like, don't do it. You, you are not ready, okay? You are not ready. You, uh, householder, are not ready for this. <laughs> like, when you are, I mean, honestly, in the Tibetan Tantra tradition, we don't even talk about that unless, like, you know, you're a monk for, like, 50 years. Like, then they start going into it. Um, because it's considered, it's considered really powerful. Um, there's clearly, you know, there's clearly evidence for, um, you know, it's, it's, sometimes it makes people, okay. So I'll use myself as an example. When I first started doing Kundalini yoga, I was also, thank goodness, in therapy. So when you work on some of this stuff, there are shifts of energy and you do start tapping into repressed memory or pain or all sorts of things that are intense. Um, that's why in lots of other traditions, they wouldn't do that to a newbie. You know, you would have to spend a long time before you were taught that because they believe that's responsible. I don't agree with that, disagree with that. That's certain traditions, that's just the way it rolls. But to, to be this cavalier about it, because I remember, you know, doing certain things that they would bring up certain feelings, certain memories, certain and then I would go talk to my therapist about it. So it was like a really nice, useful, you know, um, way to process. It was like a nice check and balance. Right. Like, mm -hmm. and I could, because I, I mean, I remember when I first told my, um, I told my Masi, my aunt, I was like, Oh, I'm doing Kundalini yoga. She's like, you cannot do Kundalini yoga. And I'm like, Whoa, why? She's like, women should not be doing Kundalini yoga. 
because this is another like colonial thing, right? That like women, our little brains can't handle it, right? Um, <laughs> it, it, it has, there have been different times when it's been siloed off. And I know, you know, you definitely use that as like appeal. Oh, no one has talked about this. I'm telling you all the secret stuff. He made that a part of the mysticism that made us feel mm -hmm. special by being able to go right. right to the quote source, even though he's making that source up. Right. I mean, if you talk to Nihang traditions that, you know, come, which he clearly derives a lot of things from, certain terminology, certain stuff, um, they'll tell you, like, you know, Evolving Kundalini a couple of months ago brought in this wonderful Nihang scholar to talk about, you know, the roots of this yoga. And they talked about Surachab yoga. Um, and... He basically, he's like, you know, um, this is what Surat Shabd is. This is what we do. This is where it comes from. This is how old it is, yada, yada, yada. And then when we, when someone asked, well, what do you think of Yogi Bhajan? He's like, look, I'm not going to talk smack about anybody, right? Like, I'm not here. He's a dead person. I'm not here to talk about that. And he's like, but all of those manuals, I would burn them down <laughs> because that's made up. And oh, that thing ended so quickly. They're like, thank you so much for coming off, you know, because. Um, You're talking about I, in like, the Facebook group of Evolving Kundalini. So there's a whole group for listeners that don't know. A couple episodes ago, I had Ravi on and, you know, he has, you can listen to that episode. But one of the things is that that group is wanting to find kind of real root systems for this practice they call Kundalini yoga. Because when you have a life altering transformation within yourself, you want to have some source to it. Right. And so that he, he came on and, and I thought it was a great conversation. And yet a lot of the things that he was trying to quote legitimize about the practice, he couldn't source. And he admitted it a couple of times. He was just like, yeah, I've never thought about that. Yeah. I'm not sure about that. But one of the things that he brought up was, I think it's this conversation you're talking about where he brought somebody in who was like a Nahung and he basically was trying to legitimize some of the mystical stories that YB had talked about and basically legitimize it by saying, Oh, the lion yogi sect has these mystical stories. Those stories are their stories, our mystical but we're stories. we're doing lion yoga. Exactly. The, the, sure, the lion yogi sect, yes, it exists. It does. It, it's, it's, you cannot join it if you're a woman. It's, it exists. It's existed for several centuries. But what they do is not what the KRI textbooks 3HO does. Sorry, it's just not. It's right. So like this not. doesn't equal that. And having a mystical this doesn't equal the legitimization of of this mystical story that YB has spun through Satanama or Satkriya right. or Longakonkars or whatever meditation that any one of us might have done and had a life altering experience. It doesn't remake it OK that that not just that he was yeah. a predator, but that he has put together a body of teachings that isn't. Um, actually rooted in the mystical stories that he's given as truth mm -hmm. so there, as teachers masala, like he's taken things from you know Vinanda Brahmachari like exactly the 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 sequence of from this exercise to that exercise to this exercise right he's taken some of that stuff and used that but then there's some of those things that are very hard to do and you have all these like cautionary things that you do before that, right? Like you never do a Mahabanda 
unless you are doing it early in the morning and you've had nothing to eat or drink, maybe like a little cup of water. Um, because it's, you will puke, like you will, <laughs> you know, it's, there are just, um, so that he either took out or they're like, yeah, do a Mahabandha, but there's no like, hey, don't do this if you're, you've eaten. Like, mm -hmm. this is not a thing to do in the afternoon. Um, this is not a thing that you do at this time. It's these claims of like, yeah, if you do this for 30 days, this will change. And if you do that, this will change. I think, so one of the things that I found very offensive and very kind of colonialist is um, I've heard certain people in the evolving Kundalini world who want to kind of justify that this has roots. It's like, there's no way a 30 something customs officer working at an airport in Delhi could have made all of this up. And I'm like, I'm sorry, what, we're too dumb to make things up because we're brown? Because he has a bureaucratic job, he couldn't do this? Like, are you kidding me? Like, listen, if I wanted to make up a yoga tomorrow, between stuff that my, you know, my dad had like a big Shevite tantric meditation phase. It was my mom. And, you know, there was like her friend that did this other kind of yoga. Like, I could borrow a bunch of things from it and create a yoga. Would it be, uh, would it be, would it be well informed? No, like, I don't know enough. I wouldn't, you know, but um, I could, I could, you know, this idea that like, oh, no, he couldn't have come up with this. Like, really, really. really. And, and even to say something like, I mean, it's so it's so audacious, you know, like even right. to say like, something there's like no way a 30 something customs officer from New Delhi. I'm like, but well, every religion is some fairly ordinary person that has a mystical experience that says now every religion like that's the mystical story. Right. Do you sit there and go, well, this carpenter, there's no way he could have ever done any of this. Yeah. Or, you know, how about how he another kind of similar that in the group is I'll hear statements around like um, there's no way that a practice that makes you feel this good could not be rooted in a real tradition. Drugs make you feel really good. And I mean, an amalgam are like not good for you. Yeah, right. And, or an amalgamation know. of a bunch of things. It can still be a made up story and it can still make you feel like you can have a mystical experience personally mm -hmm. and not have the thing that you thought it was be the thing that it is. Right. I mean, there's there's things like a Thratko meditation, right? A Thratko meditation is practiced across all sorts of different yoga disciplines. The difference is that in 3HO KRI world, you practice Thratko meditation looking at this picture of Yogi Bhajan. What? Like, what? Like, yo, no. Like, you know, it, it, you're supposed to do it with an abstraction. You do it with a flame. You do it with a yantra. You don't even like do it with a particular deity, even if that's the kind of Hinduism you believe in, right? Like, is, is the Tratkam meditation a real thing? Yes. Sure. Is what he did with the Tratkam meditation ethical, real, based in some ancient lineage? No, no, no. Right. And so let's talk about evolving Kundalini. 
if they want to talk about ekonkar, right? Ekonkar in and of itself is beautiful. It's rooted in Sikhi. Like you can break down. And so that's where that conversation went for me a little bit was like, it sounds like you're still fetishizing the Sikh religion, which is what YB did very well to legitimize a bunch of stuff mm-hmm. that wasn't legitimate. And so- mm-hmm. That is the work I feel is the work of anybody who's wanting to evolve as a Kundalini yoga teacher. If you're wanting to take what you've done and then take the revelations and all that's been exposed, it's going to take some work to pull apart this enmeshed bucket of messiness to find some um, where your personal experience meets real rooted source history. But to just say, Ekonkar is true, and therefore all of this is true. No, no, that's no. a stretch, and it's also—it's um, also very whiteness. It's so whiteness it, to do it that. Is. It, it is, and it's also very like if you ask a question, you're ground. You know, you're like talking from your ego. You're not. You don't have faith. You don't have this. Like, there's a lot of that thrown around, um, which I personally, a, you're lying to me about my culture. Then when I ask you respectfully where the source is, I don't say you lying liar with your lying pants, which are on fire. What I'm saying is, could you show me a source? Then you say, well, you're, 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 you're talking from your ego. You need to have more faith. You need to have more faith in the yoga. No, that's exactly what YB right, like, did to you, shut down critical thinking. And so to use that same strategy is actually revealing those people that haven't started to dissect the cognitive right. dissonance in their own consciousness. And I mean, it's like, I will be the first to admit this is hard. It is hard to do because there are things that personally may have resonated for you so much. Like I love um, Sare, Sa, 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 Har, 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 Har. I love, there's certain, like, they're under Carr's voice, I would follow her or off the planet, you know, like, <laughs> I, I, like Pied Piper. But I know that's not a real mantra. Yeah. So like, if I'm going to teach it, I'm not going to teach it. Right? Like, because that's not a real mantra. And it's, it's my job to go back. Either I stop teaching it, or if I'm going to teach it, it's my responsibility. It's my ethical responsibility to understand the source of what I'm teaching. Yes. Just that's your ethical responsibility. You know, I have never taught a class that tunes in with Om Namo Guru Dev Namo because A, uh, I'm just leading this practice today. I'm not a guru. Second of all, I will not sit on that stupid podium. In what yoga tradition do you ever see a teacher sitting on a podium? Only in Kundalini. Like there's all these culty things that are packed into this that's right just because a couple of things feel nice doesn't mean you you know drink the whole kool-aid right literally like it's the and i understand how hard it is it's been extremely hard for me to put away certain mantras because i know they're made up because I either remember having really good meditations to them, or I like the way they sound, or I like their vibe, or whatever. And that may be true for me, but there's that line between me as a person that enjoys X and me as a teacher that goes out and markets it and gives it to other people, right? Mm. Like, I may love doing OxyContin, 
but if, and I'm destroying my own body, but if I give other people Oxycontin, that's a complete, like I become a drug trafficker. I become like, that's so much worse, right? Mm. Like, I mean, I know it's a really extreme example, but that's the point. It is. You can sit there and be like, I love this mantra. You know, I, I love it. And I know it's made up. I know it exists nowhere. Um, I still like it. I have good memories of it. But are you going to teach it to other people? And are you going to teach it to other people? Honestly, going, so this is a made up mantra that I really like. <laughs> so we're going to chant that. If you can do that with integrity and honesty, like, why group? Like, mm. that genuinely means you're being honest, no? You mentioned it's the Wahiguru, Wahiguru mantra as well, or Guru Ramdas. I wonder if you want to. Yeah, I... it helps because there are a lot of people listening and people that have come to me personally asking me which is legitimate, what's not, you know, and this isn't this, this isn't the place that we're actually teaching all that. But I do like to hear your, um, your uh, perspective because you have a, a great one. Okay, so I've always been a pain in the ass when it comes to spirituality. I'm not a joiner. So I'm a big fan of asking questions. Um, and when I see, so, you know, Dharti hai, Akash hai, Guru Ram Das hai. You're saying there's the earth, there's the sky, and there's Guru Ram Das. Um, None of the gurus posited themselves as divine creatures. Guru means teacher, not God. I mean, like that was when Guru Nanak died, it was unclear. Like the Hindus and Muslims fought about what tradition his human remains would be taken care of. Because to the Muslims, he sounded like a Muslim mystic. To the Hindus, he sounded like a Hindu mystic. Um, he didn't think of himself as either this or that, you know, to like 10 generations later, it starts to evolve in a very different way. Like Guru Nanak didn't have Kirpan and Kacha and Kanga, right? Like that was something that Guru Gobind Singh came up with. That was the 10th Guru. He said, yeah, it's things like this, like Vahyanti, Karyanti, Pavan, Pavan, Pavan. Okay, is the word pavan in Gurbani? Yes. Does it exist? Yes. But this pavan, 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 pavan guru, why guru? Mm, made up. Like, I mean, I can make up mantras too. I can take words that I love and say them. Um, and everybody has a right to do that. But then I also have the responsibility as a teacher to say, I just like the sound of these words. So we're going to say them together. Because mm -hmm. I think they're cool. Uh, or whatever. Or right. they have resonance for me. And whatever. You can't say, ah, because lion yoga, one syllable matches with them. So we are lion yogis. And <laughs> that's why we're doing this. Like that. Right. So going to the mystical stories, we all know if you're reading and listening to the research that has come out in the last few years and that has been out for a long time, if you've been paying attention, way longer than the last few years, um, is 
there was a mystical story where Yogi Bhajan had a dream and Guru Ramdas came to him and suddenly everything became about Guru Ramdas and all these mantras came out about Guru Ramdas. So then we had Guru Guru Ay Guru Guru Ramdas Guru and then that became and then it was the four you know the heart center and then he was the fourth Guru and so linking the compassionate of the heart to him and 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 so what I've picked up in hearing how these stories have played out, how mystical stories root back to coping mechanisms in sociopolitical necessity, yeah. as you brought up, yeah. right? So yeah. he's changing the story, evolving it, which only allows his followers to then bite on to a new thing for however many right. more years that's going to go on. So Guru Ramdas is right. an example of that within the Kundalini Yoga Absolutely. space. And and look, it's 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 part of a tradition, right? When he first comes to Canada and then, you know, L.A., he has pictures of Guru Virsasinga. He says things like, I am whatever I am because of my guru. I am whatever I am because of my guru. My guru is a great person. Then suddenly, one fine day, Virsasinga is no longer cool. Um, at some point in this evolution, he talks about Dhirendra Brahmachari. Then suddenly, Dhirendra Brahmachari, the name goes away. Um, then it's somebody called Santhazara Singh. No historical record, no like completely implausible person that, you know, I, I think that he thought that because uh, he was living in the United States and he could always point to partition as I never saw my teacher again. Um, so then it becomes Santhazara Singh. Then it becomes Santhazara Singh. I have a dream and Mahantantric. Then White Tantra becomes this massive business. Like White Tantra was not taught to that first cohort of teachers that he sent out. Suddenly it becomes the be all and end all of things. Then later it becomes Ramdas. I had a dream about Ram. And then, you know, like you can find symbolism in lots of things, right? Like it's like a Rorschach test. If I show you a pattern, you're gonna see what you're gonna see there. And he was really good at giving people feel-good messages. Brilliant marketer, swine of a human being, but brilliant marketer. Like he was really good at weaving things together. Um, but also, you know, if you actually read the transcripts of some of his talks, it just don't make sense. He's like talking in circles. It's, if you're gonna point to that and say, Therefore, Guru Ramdas. What? Why was Guru Ramdas not important eight years ago? Now it's all about. I honestly think it comes from him having falling outs with humans and his ego getting bigger and his organization getting bigger. You know, he needed to be financed initially, and then he didn't, and then he was trying to ally with. The Congress Party, which is where the Brahmachari is from. And then after the Golden Temple 84, after Operation Blue Star, he realizes that he can't be so pro-Congress. And that, you know, there's Punjabis and Sikhs that he that think he's a complete traitor for, you know, Operation Blue Star happens. And um Yogi Bhajan wrote a a, a a telegram of congratulations to the Prime Minister of India. This is part of historical record, okay? Um, that did not make him popular in Punjab because whether you believed in wanting Khalistan and wanting Punjab to be its own country and it's no one appreciated the fact that 
there was a military operation in the holiest site of a religion. So even if you were someone that thought that this, you know, movement, this national movement, or you thought it was a terrorist movement, or whatever your your mindset was, that line of, you know, the army going in and burning down things, if you even if you were completely not radical and thought these people were lunatics for wanting their own country, you didn't appreciate that. Like that was, so then all of a sudden, no more than in the Brahmacharya. Then the Lampo. Then Guru Ramdas, directly relationship with one of the gurus. I mean, I'm surprised. I, I think if he'd lived longer, he would have started talking about how he was Guru Nanak. I mean, yeah, it's really interesting because it's the foundation that he talked Guru Nanak that got a lot of seekers because it wasn't a religion. It was a seeker of truth. And so there's mm-hmm. a, I know my father and, and Ravi spoke to it, but other people who, let's say, you know, left by the 80s or 90s, you know, the philosophy, I call it the ethos, was they hooked on to the Guru Nanak teachings that he gave in terms of, oh, you know, it's 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 the story around you know, we're all, it doesn't matter what you practice, doesn't matter what you believe, we're all one. And that's kind of like a feel good story that a lot of Westerners really jumped on because they were anti-religion in the start. Mm-hmm. Um, and then slowly it became more and more seekified, right? As he started to try right. to legitimize. And so Guru Nanak was used as that way to kind of transition. And again, my father always spoke in the generalities of Guru Nanak. Oh, Guru Nanak. Oh, the truth. Oh, you know, it doesn't matter what you follow. You know, it doesn't matter if you practice this or not, because yoga is the way of life. And, you know, kind of these big feel good, wholesome everybody is integrated in all, you know, yet when it came down to it, the fundamentalist practices that we were actually living by the, the high mm-hmm. demands of, of the, of the requirements of what it actually took. It wasn't all is one at all. You know, it was like, this is the right way you have to do it this way. Or, mm-hmm. and even his lecture spoke to that. And you're talking about him speaking in circles. He would speak in word salads and then come back around to that original point he made, which Again, if anybody's paying attention, these things are actually studied, proven and documented as Mm -hmm. manipulative brainwashing tactics that are used in military environments, as well as a lot of other environments. These these are a part of what's been written in history. So to just keep using a mystical story, whether it's about Guru Ramdas, Guru Nanak, any mantra that was the feel good feeling for you, because I've had plenty, it's not enough. We have to be willing to stop and start dissecting and pulling this apart and saying, what if this story that is guided the last 25 years of my life is actually a lie? What would that mean about who I am today? Right. That's a tougher question. Right. And it's also financial, right? Like I can afford to say these things because I do not make my daily bread from teaching yoga. Mm. So if, if words I say mean that I'm no longer a yoga teacher um, because I'm not welcome in the tent of whatever, okay, it's, you know, I'm, I'm okay with that because right. that's not how I, I eat. But if your entire identity is that you are, you know, a, a singer of this kind of music, if you are a teacher, if you, like, if everything you do is about this 
central thing in your identity, um, that's got to be a really hard thing too. I also absolutely have so much, look, my dad, who I thought was one of the most brilliant people in the world, joined a cult. Um, And this rhetoric of how could you fall for this? um, It like smacks of arrogance, right? You're just like, no, 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 no. Um, So Murakami wrote a book called Underground after um, there was that cult in Tokyo that had like the sarin gas um, incidents in the Tokyo subway. And he interviewed lots of victims of that day, um, the emergency response. But then the second part of the book, he actually went out and and, um, interviewed people that joined the group and like were either part of the operation or aware of the operation. I'm just trying to understand their motivations. The things that come out really clearly, uh, they are idealistic. They are often people that don't, you know, because of their intelligence, and a lot of them are very intelligent, um, aren't good at towing the line, but they still want community. They still want, I mean, it's, it's, these are not, you know, people who do this are not stupid people that are gullible. Um, you know, like there, but for the grace of God, go I like that, that humility also needs to be a big part of the conversation, right? Like, If your entire life has been about this and you are 70 something and you don't talk to your biological family because you left in order to join this Eastern mystical group that was supposed to have the answers. How do you now go back and say, my bad? Like, I get it. That's hard. It's easy for me to, you know. I get it that it's hard too, and that the entire the amount of dedication, how much their entire lives have been oriented. Somebody like myself who's grown up in it, but my livelihood wasn't dependent on Kundalini Yoga, so I totally hear that that very important point. And it goes back to the statement of the ethical responsibility as a teacher. Um, it, it's we understand the the pain of it, the difficulty. It's not easy for any one of us, even if your livelihood isn't around it, it's not easy to do this. But when your livelihood is dependent, it's that much harder because there's reasons why you can just kind of keep things at a distance and just keep it moving. Why you just take out the name and you just try to teach on a universal source level instead of really mm-hmm. examining, you know, is this legitimate? Is this real? Is this, is is this something I want to carry on knowing that it's rooted mm-hmm. in such predatory history um, and pre- pre- predatory present day? Um, mm-hmm. I think this is what is standing out to me the most of your story is we're talking about 2019 and 20 folks. We're talking about, mm-hmm. you know, you're giving us a lens into the overall kind of cultural appropriation of yoga and how when somebody finds kundalini yoga, that's an often response, like a mix, like, well, that was fun, weird. I've had people of South mm-hmm. Asian descent kind of say, wow, it reminds me of, of being in Gudwara growing up. And oh, I really like that part. And so all of the amalgamation, you calling it masala yoga is such a good terminology to me because that's what I'm seeing more and more is that even though um, it might not be a real tradition that he called it from. He he mm-hmm. stole 
lots of different truths from, from sources that are real to say that breath practice isn't real. Of course it's real. Go back and study folks. Mantra, of course it's real. You know, postures and asanas and consciousness, these concepts and this historical knowledge, it's real in many lineages, as you've pointed out. And so the fact that you have the capacity based on your own lived experience to be like, oh, that's from that tradition. That's from that tradition. It lets you kind of organize a disorganized thinking pattern. And the fact that he's, that we're getting a disorganized thinking pattern and we think it's elevated consciousness, you can be like, no, no, no. And you can realize like, whoa, this is feeling disorganized and then ask a pointed question where a lot of us don't have that capacity and want to. And I've had people since 2020 come back and say, how do I know what's real in this? And I just say, Hey, I'm not the person for that conversation because I'm not interested in that right now. You can go do those sources. But the only place I had to really send people is I would say, I know there's people like the evolving Kundalini yoga group that are asking these types of questions, but I also see people kind of doing very whitewashy spiritual bypassy type things in answering some of those questions instead of really getting to the source of the questions like you're pointing out on this interview. I mean, we, we had this, we've had these moments um, within the, the, the community where I practice yoga, where there are people that have been doing Kundalini for longer than I have, um, way longer than I have, that have come to us as teachers or to the studio in general and said, hey, I hear A, B, C, and D. What's happening? Or I read this book or I listened to this podcast, or, um, you know, I I noticed this thing for this case about toner bandit, you know, what is this about? Um, When I hear teachers saying things like, well, let's have faith in the yoga. um, I'm like, that is lazy. That is you absolving yourself of responsibility. Period. 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 And, you know, say, say, I, I, you know, I like this. It works for me. I don't want to spend time getting into it. Like I've had people tell me, oh, you're too political. I'm like, oh, I'm sorry, because I understand history and politics and why he suddenly went from this to that. Like, okay, fine. I'm political, you know, but I'm like, this is my journey, right? Like I, 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 I don't do well with cognitive dissonance. I have to dig deep. Um, I have to figure it out. Um, once I see it, I cannot unsee it. There are people that see it and can bury it away. I can't. I will develop an ulcer and drive myself crazy. Um, I used to my family, my nickname when I was a little girl used to be but why? Because that's that's what I would ask. <laughs> but why? Do this, eat this, but why? You know, you're going to do this now, but why? Um, and my mother would just be like, oh my God, like, just do it because I tell you to. But both of them learned that that didn't work with me. So they had to be like, here's why. This is your dosha. So you cannot eat this because you are too fired up. And so we cannot have you have pita and enhancing foods. And I'd be like, what is wrong with my pita? Maybe this is the way I am. 
maybe it is my karma to have high pitta. How do you know? Like, this is the level of but why. Um, and I, I mean, I'm so grateful for my parents for tolerating me um, and, and actually encouraging me to be like, well, then go read this book. Yeah. Or, you know, here's a copy of the Srimad Bhagavatam. Go read it. Mm-hmm. Go read the Patanjali Sutra. Just here, take the book. Go, go, go. You know, like, why? Why is this dosha bad? Fine, fine. I don't have time to explain this to you. Here's a book on the Tridosha. Go read it. You know, like, I get that I could have been doing lots of money-making things with my time, I suppose. But um, but for me, at this stage in my life, if I'm going to teach yoga, it's one thing for me to say, I'm bountiful, blissful, blissful am I. I love that song. It's really fun. It makes me feel nice. Um, it's a whole other thing for me to say, this is a mantra. Come, ye other people. Here is my certification as a teacher, and I'm going to teach it to you. Um, irresponsible. I think there are just things in general. I was stunned at how little anatomy or injury prevention or any of that we talked about in Kundalini Yoga, in teacher training. There was a lot of like, because Yogi Bhajan said so, Guru Ram Das, yada yada, blah, 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 fish cakes, but none of the practical stuff, the ethical stuff, um, that's real, you know, like you, you got to take care of people that are coming into a class. Mm-hmm. Um, and you took teacher training in 2020. And so was it exposed? Was it trans? Were they transparent that there was um, a full on movement happening and a lot of rev- was any of that brought as a transparent process into the training at all? Absolutely not. I realize now that they brought in very few American speakers and they brought in Lots of speakers. So our lead trainer was American. Who was um, it? That's she's okay. one of the people that wrote the textbook. Um, older woman. Um, clearly one of the old school, you know, names completed. But I'm, 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 I definitely have it written down somewhere. Um, she was definitely on the KRI board. I remember seeing that a couple of years ago. Um, but everybody else, we had speakers from South America, we had speakers from Europe, we had where, it, I don't know, it's almost like they're a little bit more distanced from, and it's very like, you know, we don't want to talk about it. And the, it was the American students that had the questions, and then the South African students that had questions. And then once we watched that video of him, you know, spouting off, then everybody else started to research and ask questions. Um, But initially, no, it was a very forced, it was a, it was an ordeal to say, are we ever going to talk about what happened? Like, how do you square the circle? Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, um, it's about the teachings, not the teacher. Okay, in that case, let's talk about the teachings because these teachings are from lots of different things and some of them is like full on made up. So can we talk about the teachings? So either you, if you're gonna say, talk about the teachings, not the teacher, then you have an ethical responsibility to understand what the teachings are. Yes. 
you know, you, you can't like you can't play this little shell game um, of no, no, have faith in the yoga. It's about the teachings. Okay, fine. Then where does this mantra come from? Absolutely. You know. Um, yeah, it's it's extra disturbing, and and we all we all needed to speak this out loud and really hear what's being said here, because because. You know, we all know that there's been these sides that have been formed since 2020 and it's they call themselves the denier group or the pro, you know, pro the people of, you know, believing the the uh, victims of harm group. But let us be very clear that the KRI 3HO people that help to negotiate this global training are the people that are saying they stand on the side of the believers, the people who will believe the victims of harm, they stand for survivors. The, the CEO of 3HO, Joppa, even said, I won't call you guys survivors. I'm going to call you th survivor thrivers. And I'm thinking, yo, can you just pause and acknowledge the harm before you want to project onto us that we're thriving? Because a lot of fucking people aren't thriving. And in fact, That's a lot so of people are being re-traumatized. Yeah. I'm saving people. Like, People who wrote these books and did the work, like, how about you write them a check out of these massive amounts of money that you have from, you know, gee, I don't know, having a call security guarding DHS detention camps. How about you take some of that money that falls under the 3HO umbrella and, you know, spend some time. Money doesn't solve everything. Sure. But for things like treatment, I, I, you know, will occasionally hear about how there are people that are trying to like get treatment that applied to 3HO for stuff and then they, the, you know, the funds have gone away or it's only people that I'm like, okay, listen, mm -hmm. like you're not a bankrupt organization and you're still actively making money and you're still actively growing in Latin America and, and actively putting money into PR to whitewash and lightwash all of the real stories of harm that are coming out. And then you come up with a global teacher training where you call yourself trauma informed. You put black people on your website. You go to 3HO.org and you can't even recognize that it's the same brand because they changed the original 3HO logo to a little orange sun, put some black Asian people up on the on the thing. And now you call yourselves trauma-informed and egalitarian only to re-traumatize people in a teacher training in 2020. First of all, we were disgusted that you were putting out that training at that time because we knew it was a whitewashed version. But the fact that you actually are marketing yourself to women, people of color worldwide, and what you're talking about is they strategically only brought in a certain amount of U.S. people, probably so they didn't have as much voice to what was actually taking place and what was being revealed. And if they put up other teachers around the world, those people don't have as much uh, of their own cognitive dissonance activated because they're not in the full scene of the Olive Branch report and all the things that were taking mm -hmm. place. It's, it's um, There's like an active effort where 3HO and especially KRI says things like, that happened in the past. Let's focus on the future. Yeah, and 3HO I'm does it too. I'm happy to focus on the future as long as you can guarantee to me 
that the money that I'm paying you is going to compensate the victims of this particular tradition. That's all. As a consumer, I think that is my responsibility, right? Like, if I'm going to not eat at Chick-fil-A because they're bigoted, and if I'm going to add, you know what I mean? Like, if I'm totally. going to be like, oh, I'm not buying that brand because of their practices, then I need to have the same ethics with yoga, and I can't hide behind spirituality. I can't right. hide behind, you know. Believe in the practice. Believe in, in the, the technology. I love these words. I love I these words, these like buzzwords, you know, it's like some 70s consultant um, technology. I love like how there were certain Kriyas that he would name after movies that were popular. So I just thought like, what? wow, like the audacity, you know, I'm like, just, I mean, for me, the fact that like he called this sweet, young, good looking woman, his lover, is just, I'm like, yeah, and in this, the context of the uncle, type of lover, it's it's mistress, right? It's a type of yes, lover is mistress. Yes. And the fact that Pamela didn't even know that until like 2020 when all this stuff came public is even more wild, right? The fact that she had that name and didn't have that name, came back to the community. And and for me, it shows it shows the audacity of the whiteness of our identity in 3HO because we got given a story of our specialness as if the Kundalini yoga tradition went back before to the Guru Nanak days. And because of colonialism, Indians didn't get the real teachings, but you white people are getting the real teachings before Kundalini yoga had to go secret. And so we get this extra exceptionalist story, which is one of the pillars of white supremacy is to be, we have a right. white exceptionalist story. But we don't right. see it at that. We just see ourselves as special because when you grow up as something special and you hear the mystical story, of course, like you said, you're going to create real connections that create your own nostalgia. But Premka, you know, the fact that's such a cultural, it, it shows the cultural audacity of our identity in context to the larger Indian identity of yoga and the world that all this comes from. It's just his, like, his audacity for me in the beginning was just, like, you have to. So first of all, when I first came into Kundalini, there was no mention of this person. I had no idea that this person existed. And when I would ask questions, it would be, yeah, honestly, it was never like, I mean, names like Guru Jagat were thrown around or, you know, but. I've never heard the name Yogi Bhajan until mm -hmm. I read Prinka's book. Yeah, that was so interesting because, to hear. You know, like they, um, I never went into a yoga studio. And I, and, and I remember trying Kundalini in lots of different studios in the region. And, you know, most of them were kind of shared yoga spaces where they had a Kundalini class and then they also had Hatha classes. And they also, so there was no like veneration of Yogi Bhajan per se. Like, I don't remember my teachers saying Yogi Bhajan, Yogi Bhajan, Yogi Bhajan. They didn't talk about it. Once the, the stuff came out, so, like, honestly, I didn't go into it from the lens of this predator. I went into it from the lens of, okay, you've got this practice. Can you tell me where your source is? Yep. And, you know, and I'm like, oh, okay. So you've basically made it up. 
It's only once you go deeper that you realize that this was not made up this way by accident. Mm. There is so much breath of fire because breath of fire discombobulates you. You're kind of high. You're much more, feels great, but, you know, not really good for you. Like Kapalabhati, okay. But breath of fire, no. The breath of fire you use when you're like, you know, in the, in, a, in Tibet on a Himalayan plat- plateau and you're trying to like not freeze to death. Then you use breath of fire. You don't do it in the summer. You, you know, like there are, it, it's things like this, like, oh, so he did it on purpose. Mm. Like, it's not like he didn't know about Kapalabhati. Um, he clearly did it on purpose. He was trying to get people to get high. Huh. Oh, how interesting. This whole, like, ch- Aquarian sadhana in the morning. Huh. I also don't understand how, like, he did things that were clearly about control. People's diets were controlled, what they wore was controlled, how they educated their kids was controlled, who they married was controlled. Um, And it's not done as an accident. There's a malignancy there. There is an intent to harm there. Um, And that's really appalling. It's it's not just, A, he made all of this shit up and just as a, you know, as... A South Asian woman, I'm all like, don't you dare. But on the other hand, I'm like, oh, you did it this way because you were trying to get these idealistic, smart people to stop thinking and to hand over their will to you. And, you know, you flattered them with how they were so special and how, you know, they had, like, I remember reading through Lotion Singh's book and how it was like, oh, no, no. We're going to be the vanguards of Sikhi. Forget all these millions of Sikhs in India and Canada and in the UK. Forget that. We know better. We know better. Um, Manju, that roots so deeply for me that I was a teenager at 18 years old flying to East Africa, and I didn't realize that East Africa was fully populated with Indian Sikhs. You know, that's how non-globally aware I was, even though my brothers went to school in India, even though we think we're learning all these real Indian things. I go to Kenya and I'm shocked that my taxi driver is an Indian Sikh man. But then let's add the cognitive dissonance. I say, oh, Satnam. And he's like, Satsiriyakal. And I'm like, oh, right. Okay, because that's not the real greeting. You don't just say Satnam, right? So then I, I, I'm i like, oh. And then and then I come to find out within one quick conversation, because he invites me to the bar, that Indians, Indian Sikhs in East Africa are known to be the biggest meat eaters and the biggest drinkers, which we grew up doing neither, thinking that we're the most pure Sikhs. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, yeah, the, the a Sikh point... wedding is like a party. Okay. Like this idea that you have ascetic Sikhi, I just thought this is wild. <laughs> like I remember I called one of my dearest Sadani friends and I was just like, Sonia, you're not going to believe this. These people, she's like, what nonsense? What kind of wedding can you have with no chicken? I'm like, they're eating kitchen every day, Sonia. And she's like, what rubbish? <laughs> I was like, dying i was dying because it's like i mean it was just like mind-blowing uh, it is. The, the version of you know yes. um, and only in america right like he couldn't have pulled this off in india he couldn't have it's, it's so much bullshit you know? that's right like, that's right couldn't have pulled it off in india absolutely um, so you know he comes here and 
makes himself a ridiculous amount of money, um, decides he's a, he doesn't even start as a religion. He's very clear about that. He right. starts as a yoga teacher, but because then he realizes for tax purposes, it's better for him to be a religious figure. And so he slowly starts siphoning it into more and more specific things to seek you directly. And anyway, it is very interesting. But folks, those of you listening and those of you that aren't yet listening and you need to pass it on to the friends who need to listen, it's why this book under the yoga mat is so valuable. It's because there is, it's like a tsunami of information that has been written in real time from the 70s forward, but for whatever reason, based on mystical stories, based on your personal practice, based on your life experience, based on whoever your teacher was at the time, you chose not to look at it. You were taught not to look at it. You were trained not to look at mm -hmm. it. I was trained not to look at it. And I had to wake up to that reality and be like, how come I've never looked at that? That's been in the public domain since 1985. And, and you know, this is built into the fabric of the technology of the teachings of the mysticism that makes this practice seem so connecting when it's actually fragmenting and mm -hmm. you don't know it, right? You don't know unless you have something to context to. And so going back to under the yoga mat, folks, I just really, I can't stress it enough that this material I feel is like an, a, an opportunity for teachers for anyone struggling with what's real and not real within kundalini yoga to have this book that that summarizes it puts all these resources in one place so that then you can go and read that document if you want or you can go mm -hmm. look at the library teachings if you want or you can go listen mm -hmm. to more of my podcast or other people's sourced podcasts on in the book but it i see this as what I would like to see personally in all teacher trainings of all yoga, but specifically Kundalini yoga, that this book is actively used as the reading material. Take master's touch out and you put this book in because who master's needs to be touched touch. by the motherfucking master? Yeah, it needs to be all about how we do not touch people. Like that's the other thing in Kundalini yoga in all Kundalini traditions, you do not touch people's you just don't. You don't. And then I remember being like, oh, yeah, if you feel like someone's having an emotional experience, feel free to massage their feet. I'm like, oh, how's it going? No, I'm not massaging someone's feet. Like, they're having an experience. I'm supposed to hold space for that. But I'm not going to go add my subtle body and my vibes onto them. Like, that's disrespectful. What kind of nonsense? It's things like that. It's just like, if you're going to talk about the mysticism, then talk about the mysticism. Don't make shit up. Don't and if make, you're shit, make up. shit up. Then be like, we're doing this mantra because I really like it. I don't know what it means, but it sounds fun. And I personally love it. So we're I just enjoy it. it. I have no idea where it comes it. from, but I enjoy it. Like get real, I be honest. Get exactly. Yep. Transfer it accordingly, but don't give it a story um, or use the same story that is known to have been, you know, made up and plucked right. out of nowhere. Parrot things like Sa means this and Tha means that and Ra means that and Guru Ram Das this. Like, 
Well, and that's all in the teacher training manual. I mean, they have the hand, right, where they're showing the finger and then they're showing why you need to touch this and this is the ego and you're so, you know, these things are baked into the teacher training. And so I guess one of the main points I want people to hear here is even if you left, you're like a person like Ravi who left in the 90s, if you haven't actually gotten cult indoctrination to unindoctrinate, because that's a thing, time does not heal you. Time does not uncult your thinking because the brain literally got disorganized. It's proven and scientific and you need actual support to be deprogramming from some of those embedded stories that formed your cult identity. And so this is why I advocate support in this area, because you can't do it alone. You can't do it just in your meditations. You can't just do it in your practice. That was a part of the mystical story we got fed that Kundalini yeah. Yoga was the end end all be all. And we have to stop that and say, hey, that might work for you, but you also need to start deconstructing some of the things. And that's why cult therapy, high demand group therapy supports that deconstruction. So if you left a long time ago and you're still teaching what you used to teach, it's filled with a bunch of stuff. It just is. And to only take that apart, like you said, Manju, this stuff is not easy. You know, if you choose to move forward as a yoga teacher, you know, you're moving forward to bring a decolonized form of yoga into the world. And, you know, it's full of appropriation, like it's appropriation is normalized and going for equity in mm -hmm. yoga is not. It's like you're going yeah. up the stream. So make no mistake, folks, this is not easy. It's not easy for a, a woman of Southeast Asian descent. It's not easy for people of color. It's not easy for anyone. But it is your ethical responsibility if you choose to disseminate the information as a teacher in any capacity. Amen. Amen there. Um, Manju, you have been such a breath of fresh air. I could have on and on conversations with you, which we're going to. Um, but I just want to leave it to you again. Last words for the 3HO community. Anybody listening? Anything you want to say here? I know it's hard, but do the work, man. Do the work. It's the compassion you deserve and the compassion other people deserve. Just do the work. I know it's hard. I know it sucks. Reach out to other people. We're here. We'll support you in the journey. You're not alone, but you got to do the work. Get the book under the yoga mat. Bring it to your yoga studio. Do as Manju did, and she brought it to the studio. I don't know if you want to describe how what you what went about with that. So, so the the plan is that. Anybody in the studio that was ever trained by KRI uh, or any, you know, KRI derivative, 3HO derivative, anybody that teaches Kundalini Yoga, and frankly, any of the yoga teachers from Nidra, Hatha, whatever tradition, we are all coming together. There are copies of the book that are bought at the studio that you can come and borrow and put back. It's like a lending library for the book. Um, and the owner of the yoga studio gave us a long time to read the book um, and we are all coming together on a certain date we're going to have the conversation about who are we and what is our ethical responsibility and process some of this because i know for a lot of people there's been a lot of head in the sand kind of um approach yeah and i get it i do um you know they don't know what means but so they don't know, you know, like they don't know what they're saying. Um, so first, that's step one, where we ha we're having the conversations with the instructors of yoga, 
no matter what tradition they're from, because I wish Kundalini Yoga and 3 and KRI were like the only traditions to be affected by this kind of abuse of power. It's not, um, you know, I, I, I don't know of any of the yoga movements that have not been touched by scandal. So it becomes a really important conversation for us to have as teachers and talk about the ethical responsibility. And then in December, once we've had time to digest, um, we're having a conversation with all of our students. Everybody's invited to come in and we're gonna have the talk. Um, and you know, it's, a, it's an open space and I know it's gonna be hard. Um, it's, it's a hard, it's a hard, I, I get it. It's a hard book to read. Um, for me, there were parts that were really validating. I was like, see, I told you, Satanama does not mean this. I told you, there's a, there's all these books by Thibodeau say, but like, it, it, it's, I get that. Like, I, I get how hard that is because it's been hard for me to walk away from certain mantras that I loved, um, you know, certain songs that I love. Yeah, the melodies, um, like, the, yes. the, the, uh, the, the particular artist that sang it in a particular way. And, right. and again, you can still love that. Just don't carry on and teach it. Like do it in the privacy of right. your own experience. Right, exactly. Like, you know, of course, I, I suppose I could listen to all the, you know, <laughs> meet up I say by I want on my own. But uh, yeah, the responsibility of like, okay, what am I saying when I teach this? Right. Like the book is amazing. I think it it's also a really nice place to start a conversation because it puts together so many different aspects of it. Like I haven't even gone into the amount of time I spent digesting there's no karma over the phone. Like that, <laughs> I mean, that that's another podcast altogether. I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. But there's so many different pieces of the book that weave together all these disparate abusive cult practices going beyond the horrible sexual assaults and grooming. There's There's so much more. And the book is like a wonderful way to, get all of that information i read it in a day i didn't sleep i read it in a day well i'm happy to hear that and again i also agree i think that all spiritual communities this is a really great foundational book that helps to really start a conversation of how do we deal with the dark history of, of spiritual yoga spaces and the manipulation that has gone on because it's not unique to kundalini yoga and for us to continue to think so for those of you that use the rhetoric like oh the teacher's passed or i never knew him it's irrelevant because the ethos is built into the teachings themselves into the community and how things are perpetuated and same goes for every other tradition where there has been in dark history and they've addressed it or mm -hmm. not addressed it these themes are the same thematic themes and this book is done so well shout out to else because of that level of of research Mm -hmm. to, to tie to create timelines of documents that were out all along and then stories that recently came out and to make those links it only it helps the brain be able to start digesting the undigestible to start processing what is really unprocessable and that's the whole point is we all need support mm -hmm. here none of us can do this alone one of the biggest lies we've learned is that the highest path is by ourselves. No, no, no. It's with and for each other. It's it's not all and, ourselves. And it's not, it's not helpful to have this arrogance of this would never happen to me. 
it's happening to you. If you've taken a Kundalini class, it's happening to you. Um, yes. You know, just because you haven't sent your children to a school in India does not mean that you are not part of the system. So that arrogance of treating people, oh, these nutty people that followed Yogi Bhajan, there's all of the data about how he made shit up and you're still taking this class. So let's talk about how you are being gullible as well, right? So like- And the arrogance of a teacher, the arrogance of a teacher to say, well, that wasn't my experience. Yeah, you know, that's that's a tough, I mean, I've had teachers that say that they're feminists say, well, they had willing affairs with him. You know, like they wanted to sleep with him. And I'm like, I've heard it too. I mean, like, you know, would you say this about if he was a corporate leader or a politician? And it's even more intense when it's a religious figure because you start to believe that your salvation is tied in with approval from this person. And your past life and they can see your karma and then they start. This is what I think makes it extra manipulative is YB did it, but he also taught a lot of his leaders to do it. And it still carries on in the name of healing sessions, whether they're moon center sessions or healing the chakras or whatever, there's sexual assault happening in the name of these healings. So they'll go in, oh, in order to access the moon center that's inside your cervix, I need to put my penis inside of you. And actually, we have people in the Kundalini Yoga community that abused women in South Africa using that method, in New Mexico using that method. Guru Dave Singh used that method. He was the one who ran all of um, the Satnam Rasayan stuff, and he did that with Underage. We have some podcasts on that. So the way that this distorts and passes on a lot of our men grew up thinking that they have the fucking wand of light and if they put it in a bunch of women they're fucking healing them with their cock you know that was actually said on one of our podcasts by a young man who grew up in our community like that that's what he got as a as a man in our so what are you teaching? If you're a Kundalini yoga teacher, you're passing on some of this distortion. And if you don't look at the under, if you don't look at the book, the Yoga Yoga Mat book is a good place to start because it gives you all the sources to go really read the stuff. And that's the whole point is when there's a tsunami, it's easy to not look at any of it because it's overwhelming. And we do understand it's overwhelming, but be like Manju and read it anyway, and then bring it, (laughs) bring it to your yoga studio. Just, you know, force everyone around me to read it. And I'm a big advocate of that because um, I I contacted the studio I used to teach with. And, you know, it's just really it it hurts my heart to know that people I love and that former students of mine are carrying on teaching. And their response when I sent them the Under the Yoga Mat book was, I'm sorry, that was your experience. And I'm sorry people got harmed, but that wasn't my experience. And it, yeah, it just... you know, I mean, listen, not all British colonialists beat and raped my people. So I guess this is the same, not all men, not all colonialists, not all yoga teachers. You know, it wasn't my experience, but you're part of this. You believe in karma. You believe in, you know, consequences. Let's think about it in that context. What is your karma if you are choosing to ignore the suffering of other people and using products, using teachings, using things that you know harmed other people, 
You want to talk about karma? Let's talk about how non-sattvic that is. <laughs> how non-sattvic that is. It does blow my mind because how do you teach certain aspects of consciousness and, and not take the time to listen? That's it. It's listen. I'm not saying don't teach, but listen, like at least listen, learn the story and carry on as you wish. But I know, and they know some level of their own cognitive dissonance knows that if they listen or look, they won't be able to carry on. And that's the whole point is you can't carry on as you've been. You have to carry on in a new evolved way. You have to ask different questions, look into the mantras, all the things you brought up. It was so good. Today, you have brought us to a place on this web, on this uh, podcast that I just feel like we really needed to go. And I just can't thank you enough, Manchu. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for the book. Thank you for the work you're doing. I know this is not easy. It isn't. And um, we will continue moving forward because it's only through exposing the untold stories that we can start piecing puzzle pieces. Literally, this podcast has become like a tapestry. Every story adds to the tapestry that helps us to see the full actual picture at play instead of the mystical story that, that, that we project forward. So as we move to closing, um, tell us why you chose the song you chose. Uh, one, it's one of my favorite, favorite songs. I find it deeply, deeply moving. Um, and it's been uh, part of my ethos for a very long time. But I think it specifically applies to our conversation today. It's a 14th century Indian poet. Um, and the sentiment of the song is that you cannot call yourself a spiritual person unless you understand and feel the pain of strangers. So if it's not your experience and you ignore it, that makes you comfortable. Well said. Tingles. Let's listen. Uh, tell us the name. It's uh, Vaishnava Janato. Um, in fact, Mahatma Gandhi's favorite one of his favorite spiritual songs. Beautiful. And here we go. Let's listen. As always, folks, we don't listen to the whole song because of copyright, but please uh, click on the link in the show notes for the Uncomfortable Conversations 3HO podcast playlist and listen to the whole thing. Manju, I can't uh, thank you enough for coming here and bringing your voice to this conversation and also exposing 
um, what I already knew, um, but we had never actually had a lens into it about what happened in that teacher training since 2020, when they started oh rebranding themselves as trauma informed. And I think we all really need to uh, hold 3HO and KRI accountable in this capacity that it's just really not okay to rebrand um, and whitewash um, away what's been. It's not enough to just take Yogi Bhajan's name out, his picture name, and take it off the website because it actually causes more harm. Um, by saying you stand for survivors, by doing that, you're actually re-traumatizing people again and again, um, and specifically people of color that join into this, and people of culture from worldwide that join into this thinking that it's one thing uh, because you're promoting it as such. So thank you for giving us a lens into that. It's a very important one. Um, but thank you for all that you do, for reading the Under Yoga Mat, for bringing it to the yoga studio, for being such a stand for survivors, but also for equity, for justice, and for um, all bodies being welcome in spaces and that we do the work inside of ourselves to be that person, what this song really represents, to be a living embodiment of spirituality, not just wear adornments, have special names, and wear white so that we can stand out and make ourselves feel special. Thank you. Folks, this has been another episode of the Uncomfortable Conversations podcast, the untold stories of the 3HO Kundalini Yoga community. Um, as always, if you want to be a guest on the podcast, please send me an email at gn at gurunishan.com. You can also subscribe, follow, and support my provocative truth-telling work at gurunishan.com. Um, please also share this podcast by subscribing to it and reviewing it on your favorite podcasting platform. And please be sure to share it with a friend. You can make a contribution one time or um, monthly in the show notes. There's a link. And if you haven't heard, I have started a new media platform called Conversations You Can Feel, and it includes this podcast, and it includes another podcast called Uncomfortable Conversations on Predators in Business, Community, and Culture. As you know, if you've been listening, this podcast specific to 3HO is not a new story. It is a long, long historical one. And as we start to unravel the lies within ourselves of this tradition, we start to see a much larger global agenda that has always been at play and that we are perpetuating by our own silence. So when you listen to this podcast, uh, it, it really helps to bring the conversation on a much larger global platform on issues that affect us in everyday life, business, community, and culture. Thanks so much for tuning in. I appreciate your listening support. We'll talk to you on the next one.